Welcome to this series from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. Well, we are in a two-part series, the second part, on Mr. or Mrs. President. Six things I would like to tell our next president. Say, this week, an article came across my desk in which two Christian leaders were stating that they believe we should no longer pray for America because America had crossed so many lines and was beyond redemption. I thought it was interesting that the Apostle Paul told us to first of all, first of all, make supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for all men, for kings, for those in authority, for our presidents, for our prime minister. When Paul wrote that Nero was emperor, Nero was killing Christians in the Roman Empire. And Paul said, the first thing we need to do is be praying for our leaders. They were worshiping false gods. They had public bad. I mean, Rome was a mess. They had gone way past any place that, that this nation has gone. And what's the first thing Paul says? Pray. Pray. Why? He said that we may lead quiet lives peaceable lives in godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We need to pray for our nation, right? And of course, Proverbs said that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And the, the number one thing that needs to happen for America to turn is we need prayer. We're not going to change because of the Supreme Court. We're not going to change because of what happens in our educational system. We're not going to change because of the White House. Any help we're going to get is going to come from heaven because Christians pray. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, vote. All right. And I would say to the Mr. or Mrs. President that, that as Christians, we apologize for not voting. Right. Well, how will you know what we believe and what we expect if we don't vote? You know, and here it is. This, this, we're celebrating Memorial Weekend. And what a, what, the way that you should honor those that have served, that have given their life, is by doing what you can do and vote. But the third thing that I want to say to the next president of the United States is please protect our religious liberties. I am proud to be an American. And I'm glad I live in a country that is, has freedom of religion, although that freedom is definitely in danger. There is a strong movement in our nation to take away our religious freedom. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that biblical speech opposing homosexual, homosexual behavior, including a written form, this actually means including reading part of the Bible, is essentially a hate crime. Now, that's just over the border in Canada. And there is a strong movement in the United States to have hate crimes that include any speech that is against certain politically correct behaviors. All right? And I want to ask our next president, please protect the religious liberties that we have in this nation. Many of the founders came to this nation and founded this nation because they were in search of religious freedom. Number four is protect the, the, the life of the innocent. Protect the life of the innocent, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Now, everything that I'm going to say following this, talking about protecting the life of the innocent, I want to say this. This is not to condemn anyone who has had an abortion, 
who's paid for an abortion, who counseled other people to have an abortion. There is forgiveness in Christ. Total forgiveness. The Bible says that we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That means your past is gone. It is completely forgiven, right? But this is a very, very divisive issue in our nation. And I believe that many people have never even heard the pro-life side. You know, today in America, the average day in America, we have over 3,300 abortions. That's more people than died in everything that happened in 9-11. And it's every single day. And I want to begin by, by not taking this from the Bible, but just taking and looking at it as a matter of justice and rule of law. Right? And I'm going to be quoting um, kind of extensively from Randy Elkhorn. But he says, no one who considers a preborn child a full-fledged person can rationally defend abortion's legality unless they also defend legalizing and killing other human beings. After all, every argument for aborting the child that appeals to the mother's inconvenience, stress, or financial hardship can be made just as persuasively about her two-year-old. How many know that's the truth? <laughs> or about her teenager or her husband. <laughs> Help us. <laughs> or her, her aging parents, right? People immediately recognize that those arguments are invalid when it comes to killing older children or older people, right? And they should come to the same conclusion about the unborn because the unborn is a separate person. If you take a fertilized human egg from a Chinese woman and implant that in a Swedish woman, the child is always going to be Chinese and not Swedish because its identity is based on its genetic code, not the body in which it resides, right? And the child can die and the mother can live or the mother can die and the child can live. That proves that they are two separate individuals, right? The Medical University of South Carolina, if a pregnant woman urine tests indicates cocaine use, she can be arrested for distributing drugs to a minor. And in Illinois, a pregnant woman who takes illegal drugs can be prosecuted for delivering a controlled substance to a minor. If taking these drugs while pregnant is a felony, that gives explicit recognition of an unborn as a person with rights, deserving protection even from his mother. And how ironic it is that the same woman who's prosecuted and jailed for endangering her child is perfectly free to hire a doctor to abort that child. Is that messed up thinking? It's absolutely messed up, but it's perfectly legal for her to kill her unborn child. I would like to go to the great theologian, Dr. Seuss, who said, so let that be a lesson to one and to all that a person is a person no matter how small. According to bioethicist Gregory Cunningham, injustice that is invisible inevitably becomes tolerable, but injustice that is made visible inevitably becomes intolerable. And that is really, you can see that with the Holocaust. People said, we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. Throughout Germany, we didn't know. But once they knew, once they knew, 
everything changed. Right? And there are alternatives to abortion. We will have approximately 1.3 million abortions in America this year. There are 1.3 million couples that have signed up wanting to adopt children. And many actually go outside the United States because it is so hard to get a child born in the United States to, and adopt that child. Most go outside of America. But there are alternatives. And again, to quote Randy Elkhorn, people say, I'm not pro-abortion, but I'm pro-choice. But that, how would you respond if somebody said, I'm not pro-rape, I'm just pro-choice about rape. You say, well, to be pro-choice about rape is to be pro-rape. And exactly the same, to be pro-choice about abortion is to be pro-abortion. And let me just remind us as Christians, the Bible says in Proverbs, rescue those being led away to death. Defend the cause of the weak, the fatherless, and maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God didn't say, I, I knew what was going to become you. He said, I knew you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. He said, and I sanctify you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. David said, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Your, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Not what was going to become me, but my substance. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. One of the clearest scriptures on, the, on the, the life of the unborn is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 21. It says, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he will surely be punished according as her husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, if that child is harmed, you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Here's what God said. The life of that unborn child is equal to the life of that person. Whether you're born or you're unborn, the lives have equal value. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to see Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, John the Baptist's mother was six months pregnant. And when she heard Mary's voice, the Bible says John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Leaped for joy. Six months. Leaped for joy. The Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He's having spiritual experiences before he's even born. It is a person of equal value to any person that walks on two legs. In 1936 in Nazi Germany, the high tribunal declared Jews were not persons. Thus, they were not protected by law. Hitler proceeded to commit a genocide of some six million Jews. In America, since Roe versus Wade, we have taken the life of 59 million children through abortion. Right? And it's a hidden thing. It's a hidden thing. And because it's hidden... It's tolerated in so many of our lives. Um, 
We're just going to throw up here just a couple of websites, and, and uh, I would encourage you to pray about looking at these because once you see what takes place, it will shake you to the core of your being. And it'll cause you to pray, and I believe it'll cause us to talk to our politicians and to vote for life. We think about this Tim, Tim Tebow, the NFL football player, was almost aborted after doctors advised his mother to abort him. Pope John Paul II, his mother was advised to abort him. Reverend Jesse Jackson was the product of rape. And if his mother would listen to his counsel, he would have had himself aborted. Number five is six, the economy. Now, my, 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 my grandfather came to America in 1928, was a farmer. And uh, he, was, he was like my hero growing up. And he, I started to kind of work for my, my grandfather when I was like seven years old, made 50 cents a day. But I remember grandpa sitting down. I remember I'm Dutch, not because I chose to be, but, but I was just born this way. All right. <laughs> just, just, it's just fate. All right. But you got to know this about us Dutch people. We don't let our kids out of the crib till they can balance a checkbook. All right. We did. That's just the way we be. All right. So, so grandpa sits me. I'm like six, seven years old. He sits me down. He said, now listen to me. He says, you never spend more than you make. Right. Never spend more than you make. Well, that, that's good counsel. All right. For people. But that is also good counsel for government. Right. Don't spend more than you make. Right? And unfortunately, our government has gone crazy, right? spending so much more than what they, they, they are taking in. And they're getting our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren into precarious positions financially. Right? Now, some believe that the solution to this is, well, let's just tax people. And uh, I remember my first job was working for grandpa, I got 50 cents a day. Then when I was 12, I got a better job and I worked in the muck fields for 40 cents an hour. Right? And then when I was 15, I got a job at a grocery store and I made $1.15 an hour and that was big time. All right? And I even got a check. All right? And I remember when I got my first check, there was this guy, I, I looked at that thing and, and, and I met this guy named Fica. And I, I looked at that and I went to my boss and I said, who is this? He gets my money. And he said, well, that's the government. He said, and they, they get it first. They get it before you get it. And I went, oh, okay. You know, that made sense. I mean, we have roads, we have schools, we have military. We have, we have reasons why we need to pay taxes and that's good. All right. Now, the wisest man that ever lived apart from Jesus was Solomon. I want you to listen to his, this is what Solomon says. For the person who labors labors for himself or he who works many translations say works for himself now in 1917 when the Bolsheviks had the revolution in Russia and Lenin came into power Lenin the communist they really believed that what was going to happen is the economy was going to take off because people were going to work hard because it didn't matter what you did you were just going to get what you needed you going to, everybody received the same and what happened was over just a period of a couple of years, the gross national product dropped 50% and they just could not get it back. They couldn't get it back. And ultimately, Ronald Reagan realized that and realized, look, a capitalistic system 
will outperform a communistic system every single time and basically went to economic war and, and, and brought down the, the Iron Curtain. Right? But the person who labors, labors for himself. So what that means is this, that money and work always flee to countries and states that have non-oppressive taxation. Money and work always flee to states or to countries with non-oppressive taxation. We've even experienced that right here in our church. We've had a number of business owners that just up and flee. They go to Texas or they go to Florida because of the tax situation that's so much easier on business owners. Right? Now, because we're talking to the next president, I would want to tell them to, to get the book, The Mystery of Capital, by Hernando de Soto, one of the most famous economists of the world. In fact, the magazine Economist rates his think tank as the second most important think tank in the world. And he says there's three things, this, by the way, The Mystery of Capital, it says why capitalism triumphs or only works in the West and fails everywhere else. Is there's three things that cause an economy to be efficient and to succeed. And all three of these are based in the Bible, by the way. The first one is property rights. Right? Second one is rule of law. So that there's, there's a place you can go and get justice when contracts are broken. And the third is non-oppressive taxation. Non-oppressive taxation. He says that's what you need for any economy to work. When you don't have those three things, it does not matter the natural resources that the country has. That country will never prosper. And so you can, you can see that on the Laffer curve which is the taxation curve, there is a point where the more you tax, the less revenue that you get. And we would just plead with our next president, taxes, but don't have oppressive taxes where jobs flee America and where money and people flee to places with non-oppressive taxation. Um, I want to just say something about our welfare system. Well, actually, I want to say two things about the one thing that I'm going to say. All right. Now, number one, our welfare system is screwed up. Number two, it is necessary. It's necessary, but it's screwed up, right? The Bible says, he who does not work shall not eat. And he who doesn't provide for his own, especially those of his own household, denied the face worse than an infidel. We need some sort of a system to help people in emergency situations. But it should not be a lifelong thing, and it certainly should not be generational, which is what has happened with our system that we have today. All right? Now, number six, because of time, got to hurry. Number six, very important, please stand with Israel and bless Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 38, the Bible says, after many days, you'll be visited. In the latter years, or at the end of days, you will come into the land brought back, of those brought back from the sword, gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which have long been desolate, and they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Now, this prophecy could only have taken place since 1948. And the Bible calls that in the last days. God says he's going to bring back Israel. And by the way, this is one of many prophecies where God said he was going to disperse the Jewish people throughout the world. 
But in the last days, he would bring them back to their own land. Right? After 1878 years of being dispersed throughout the world in 1948, May of 1948, God brought back the Jewish people and they once again became a nation in their own land, which is exactly what God said would happen. So Mr. and Mrs. President, understand that Israel is not simply a nation. Israel is fulfillment of Bible prophecy and is important part of God's end time plan for humanity. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and again, these two verses, they are the most important two verses in the entire Old Testament. Right? And these two verses explain God's end time plan for humanity. And God says this, I will make you a great nation. By the way, that nation is Israel. And the word great there means superior and above all others. They're on their way. How many know when Jesus comes back where, where he's going to rule and reign from? From Israel. And Israel will be the premier nation, not China, United States, or Russia, the premier nation on the face of the earth. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. It was right around the year 2000 when Time Magazine, Newsweek, and I believe it was The Economist, all had Abraham's picture on the cover the same week. And when I saw that, I was like freaked out. I thought, when you've been dead 4,000 years and everybody puts your picture on the cover of their magazine, you're great. <laughs> God said, I'll make your name great. No question about it. Then listen to this. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And then a messianic prophecy and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Catch that, I will curse those who curse you. Right. The Jews have been mistreated more than any people on the face of the earth. Right. Uh, we, don't, we can go to the Old Testament where Pharaoh is trying to have all of the baby Jewish boys killed. Haman trying to have a genocide of the entire Jewish people. Hitler just recently right? Nine, uh, excuse me. Yes. Uh, 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but that wasn't the only thing that happened from Spain. They evicted all Jews from Spain in 1492. No Jew could be in Spain. And that was not reversed until 1992, 500 years in Russia under the Romanov empire. Now, the Romanov Empire fell in 1917, and it ruled for 303 years. There were over 1,000 rules, laws discriminating against Jewish people. They couldn't own property inside of the city. They couldn't attend a university. They couldn't be a military officer. They couldn't be in banking. A thousand laws discriminating against the Jewish people. Now, every hate group hates Jews. You never notice that? They may hate somebody else. But they all hate Jews. And the reason is very simple. Anti-Semitism is demonically motivated. 2,600 years ago, the prophet Ezekiel said this, because you've had an ancient hatred. Now, this is the hatred of Jews. And it was ancient 2,600 years ago. Right? And it can be traced all the way back to Esau and Ishmael that they taught their children, and passed it on generationally, the hatred of the Jewish people. Right? The Bible calls it the ancient hatred. Right? So th the result of that is God says when you oppose the Jewish people, you oppose Israel. He said, 
you're going to bring a curse on yourself. In Zechariah 2, it says, to the nations that plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Now, the apple of your eye is the pupil of your eye. I've never gotten anything in my pupil except a snowflake, right? And just getting a snowflake in your pupil like drives you crazy. But this is what God says. He says, you mess with Israel. And it's like taking a stick and putting it in God's eye. Now, how many of you know God ain't going to put up with that very long? And, and he says, you do that. He said, it's going to bring a curse on you. I want you to look at Joel chapter 3, starting with verse 1. It says, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen. This is talking about since 1948. He has brought them back. I will also gather all nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Huge valley. You climb up on Mount Carmel. We're going to be there in a few months. And you can look. I think that thing's 50 miles long. Napoleon said all the armies of the world can maneuver in this valley. Right? The Valley of Jehoshaphat, also called the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Armageddon. Anybody ever heard of it? Right? You know, all those things you see on television about Armageddon, forget it. All right? God's going to say, this is what's going to happen. He said, I'll gather all nations and I'll bring them down to that valley, that valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. The purpose of Armageddon is not the end of the world. The purpose of Armageddon is to judge nations, right? When God said, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, it's true about individuals, but it's specifically talking about nations. He said, I will enter into judgment with them there on the count of my people, the Jews, my heritage, Israel, whom they scattered among the nations and also they have divided up my land, right? Let me say something. The United States has been a friend to the Jewish people, all right? Throughout our history, even before we became a nation, the Jewish people fled oppression and came to America and they were welcomed and they were received, all right? However, as a nation, we have violated this scripture. It says also they have divided up my land, all right? The number one nation that has caused Israel to divide their land is the United States of America through the United Nations. Right. Now, God speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. I want to read this to you and then talk to you about it in a minute. It said, and the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. From the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Right. Now, when God said, from the place you are, Abraham was standing in the West Bank. You say, what does that mean? That's the land that we made them give back, give away, give away, not give back, give away. Right. We had them give back the West Bank. We had them give back the Gaza Strip. And this specifically, this scripture in Joel talks about God judging nations for dividing up the land. All right. We as a nation, we need to stand with Israel. We need to bless Israel, all right? And we need, to, we need to recognize that that land was given to Israel by God as an everlasting covenant. He said, I'm giving it to you and your descendants forever. 
And God says, you mess with that. He says, you're going to bring judgment on yourself. You're going to bring judgment. Right? He gave that same exact promise to Isaac. And then he gave that promise to Jacob. All right. Now, lastly, Mr. and Mrs. President concerning Israel, please stand with Israel and recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It was, a, it was its capital a thousand years ago. Do not try to divide Jerusalem up. Don't try to make Jerusalem an international city. The Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And may they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. We need to recognize that Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king. It is the city that Jesus will return to. It's where Jesus will rule and reign from. It is called the city of our God. And it is and has been and shall be the capital of Israel. All right. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? No one moving unless it's absolutely necessary. In America, this is what most people believe. Good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. But I want to say something. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. What Jesus said is this, that all of your efforts will never make you right with God. And all of my efforts can never make me right with God. There is one way and only one way to have peace with God. And that is by receiving Jesus and receiving the forgiveness that he offers you. I know some of us think, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian because I go to church or because my parents were Christian or even because I believe that Jesus arose. Understand this, salvation is not about what you know in your head, it's about your heart. Jesus said you must be born again. You must. Now what that means is this, it means giving Jesus all of your life and all of your heart. That's what it is to be born again. Jesus said you must be born again. That is God's way to salvation, God's way to forgiveness. And there is no other way. Now, if you haven't given him your heart and given him your life, you still have it. And he is not a manipulator to manipulate you into giving your heart. He's not a thief to steal your heart. And if you haven't given it, you still have it. And you have to give it to him. The Bible says to as many as receive him. You see, salvation is not about your head. You can know about Jesus in your head. But salvation isn't about the head. Salvation is about the heart. That's why you need to give your heart and give your life to Jesus. He said, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. And if you hear and you open, he will come in. You need to receive him. And when you do, you'll receive forgiveness. You'll receive that abundant life that Jesus came to give you. Now, if you're here and you're not right with God, I'm going to count to three in just a moment. When I say three, lift your hand. We're going to pray, and God's going to meet you right here in this place. As you lift your hand, you're saying, first of all, I know I'm a sinner and need a Savior, and I know there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. I'm coming to Jesus today to be saved and to be forgiven. One. 
as you lift your hand, you're saying today, I'm going to give Jesus all of my heart and all of my life. And I'm receiving him as my Lord and Savior too. Now get ready. As you lift your hand, you're saying today, Jesus is going to come into my heart. He's going to blood wash me from my sin. He's going to make me a new person on the inside, a part of God's family on my way to heaven. Three, lift that hand up. Say, pray with me. Pray with me. I'm not right. Thank you. I see that hand and that hand and that hand and that hand. Other others, lift them up high. Say, pastor, pray with me. I'm not right. I want to get right today. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Three more over here. Thank you. God bless you. Another hand over here. Somebody else. Thank you. God bless you. All right. Now, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. But if you lifted your hand, please look right at me. Right? If you lifted your hand, would you please just move to the aisle that's nearest you? Come right down here. God is going to meet us right here. We're going to pray. When we say amen, your path, it is going to be gone. You're going to be right with God. You're going to be on your way to heaven. Come on down. If you're in the balcony, please make your way down. We'll wait for you. But when we pray, God's going to hear this prayer. When we say amen, a miracle is going to take place in your heart and in your life. God's going to come. Forgiveness is going to come. The blood's going to come. There's forgiveness. He's going to make you new, a part of his family, a part of his kingdom. Awesome. Now, Jesus said this. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He's not a way, he is the way. So Romans 10, 13 says, whosoever, that's gonna work for you, for you, for you, it's gonna work for every one of you, will call on the name of the Lord. Now we're gonna call on his name the way the Bible shows us to. And this is God's promise. When you pray this from your heart, we'll be saved. When we say amen, you're gonna be forgiven. You're gonna be right with God, all right? All right, take one hand, please, everybody. Put it over your heart and lift your other hand towards heaven. That's where our help comes from. And let's all pray this together from our hearts. Say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again. I receive him today as my Lord and Savior. I give him all of my heart in all of my life. I thank you for blood washing me from my sin. That my past is gone. That I belong to you. And you belong to me. And I'm a part of your family. On my way to heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. 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 Thank you for listening to this series. For more information, call 616-534-4923 or visit us at reslife.org.